Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today is my great pleasure to welcome Mark Firstain to the show. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. Mark is the CEO of Recapped.io, and they are a company that's working on bringing mutual action plans to salespeople. Mark, I'd love for you to share your favorite sales book of all time and maybe one or two lessons that you got out of it. Influenced by Caldini is, in my opinion, my favorite and easily most impactful sales book that I make all my new hires read. I forget how many principles of influence there are in there, but do you have a favorite principle? Yeah, reciprocity. Doing something and then getting an equal or greater return from it is so influential in sales. I'd love for you to explain what is a mutual action plan. So I think before we dive into action plans, I'd love to take a step back and really just think about sales in a general sense, right? So one, why do deals die? Well, in a broad sense, deals mostly die either because of momentum or lack of interest, right? Very generally, like obviously we're not talking about every deal. So if it's momentum and lack of interest, your goal as a sales team or as a sales rep is really to get the deals that are going to go through as quickly as possible so that way nothing comes up. And the ones that aren't, you want to disqualify them as soon as possible. Mutual action plan, you know, they go by a lot of names. People can call them closed plans or uh, joint evaluation plans or mutual success plans. But really, it's just a collaborative project plan that you can create with your clients, right? So both parties can be on the same page. In order to understand kind of why you started a company around this, I'd love to kind of go back through your background a little bit. You seem to love the side hustle. I noticed that you know, while you were working at Citrix, we can talk a little bit about your sales experience there. You had a side hustle going on mobile gaming. So yeah, I'd love to hear about your early journey in sales. So I think it all comes back to just my ADHD and uh, that I'm always working on something on the side. I was very fortunate to join at a really interesting point when they acquired this startup called ShareFile. And so essentially, ShareFile was doubling pretty much every month when I got there, both in size and revenue. And it had just gotten acquired by Citrix. So it had all these millions of dollars in the bank and all these resources that a Fortune 500 company gives, but still with the flexibility and speed uh, that you only get at like a world-class startup. So for me, I got very lucky, right place, right time. I uh, was able to move from an SDR to enterprise account exec to sales manager to senior manager really quickly. And part of that was just because we were growing so fast and you know we were executing on a really high level. Actually, before you get there, you just mentioned something that you started as an SDR and then you moved into being an enterprise sales rep. Yep. That's pretty rare. I mean, most people start as SDRs and they go and, you know, become an SMB sales rep. So how did that happen? So I think the first year I was there, I got four or five promotions. It was a pretty crazy time. So I moved from SDR to AE within three months, moved into a little bit more of the senior account executive and then moved into enterprise. By the end of that year, I was, you know, two, three months into mid-market enterprise deals. Ended up actually moving straight into sales management another three months later. If you were to give people advice who wanted to follow that same path, what was the mojo that you were using? I mean, I think it really just came down to becoming obsessed with your craft. You know, I was 21, fresh out of college. I didn't really have any hobbies outside of work. And it was such a great environment in that after we hit 100% quota, our accelerator moved into 5X. 
that was a pretty big incentive. So it would be not uncommon for me to be in the office until 10 or 11 o'clock most nights, right? Along with other coworkers. I definitely wasn't the only one. But that year, I digested every single book I could get my hands on, every single podcast, videos. You know, I went back and read books from the 70s, 80s, because I didn't think sales changed that much. I literally just became obsessed and was in the office every single day. Now, I probably wouldn't be doing that you know, now, but at 21, 22, at the start of my career, like I wanted to optimize for career success. And that was the easiest way to do it. Got it. So here you are working till 10 or 11 p.m. every day. And meanwhile, you got this side hustle going on at Try Hard Games. So what was that all about? Yeah. So growing up, I was a huge dork, uh, always into video games. I mean, still am. It's kind of how I spend most of my time when I'm not working, really just as like a way to break away from reality, I guess. But I had this idea for a mobile game with my roommate. We wanted to combine essentially like Tetris with Fruit Ninja, right? Which I thought, you know, two very popular games. And this was kind of when the mobile gaming boom was starting to happen, right? You had like Flappy Bird and all these other games and Candy Crush was making a million dollars a day. So I got together with a couple friends, sold them on the idea of this game. And the five of us over the next year pretty much worked every night and weekend in my apartment. So I'd come back at 10 or 11. We'd work until maybe midnight, rinse and repeat. And then Saturdays and Sundays, we'd buy five pizzas and Mountain Dew Code Red. And it, honestly, it was some of the most fun I ever had. You know, the way I de-stressed was by being creative, right? And this allowed me to, I learned so much in that year, like especially how to manage engineers, how to manage other people before I even moved into the management role, right? So it was almost like training wheels for the rest of my career. Granted, the game flopped and we didn't do that well, but it's still some of the most fun I ever had. At what point did you learn about mutual action plans? Was that something you were using when you were at Citrix? Yeah, so we used them pretty extensively at Citrix. The problem is, I think you mentioned this earlier, right? Like we didn't have a streamlined process. Everyone kind of did their own thing. So we didn't have best practices for how to do it. We just knew that we should. Moving into my next role, which was a VP of sales uh, at a company called App Academy out in San Francisco, I took that practice with me, right? Because on some of our larger partnerships and larger deals, I realized things were slipping through the cracks. And <laughs> there was actually one deal in particular that kind of had me start working on Recapped. I was working a deal. It was my last month at Citrix. We had this verbal agreement signed. It was, was going to be the largest deal I ever closed, million plus. My commission from it alone would have been 80,000, 90,000, right? So we already had verbal agreement. We had everything, you know, we were destined to sign. So in my mind, I already spent the commission check, right? I told my friends about it. I was like, this is a great way to leave a company. It's my like nice little severance. Long story short, that deal ended up falling apart. And it fell apart because we didn't have as clear of a outline of what that decision-making process looked like. And so we ended up losing the deal. And for me, that kind of actually haunted me for a bit. So moving into my new role, you know, the pain that I felt losing that $100,000 commission check, as you can imagine, is pretty high. And so for me, I wanted really to make sure that that never happened again. And I realized that the larger the deal, the more it just becomes a project, right? And that's why mutual action plans and project planning is so important. But as a sales rep, you don't have the tools. Right? What are you going to use, Asana or Jira? your client's probably not going to adopt it. So really, it means you're ending up managing the deal through a million different spreadsheets. And that's what we were doing. And so I contracted out a couple developers to build out Recapped, really just on the side for me. 
again, to kind of use as like a creative outlet, but also because I was tired of my team losing deals after eight months of hard work. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to the sort of outsourcing the things that get frustrating for you. What can be done to overcome the fact that salespeople, you know, you give them a template and they just don't use it? If lack of adoption is the issue, then I think it really comes down to two things. One is, is it easy enough to use? Which I would argue, you know, just getting a template in Google Docs is not. And two, does it work? And so they might not be actually bought in on the why or the background of using something like an action plan. Right now, you know, I talk to sales leaders every single day, like the number one thing we have in common is if they've seen it be successful, they will use action plans no matter what. Now, if they haven't had success with it, then it's going to be really hard. Right. The way I think about this, too, is if we take a step back and, you know, let's take SalesLoft or like Gong, for example, right? Two really great tools that now are really must haves in the sales stack, right? Like you just can't compete in today's environment without those tools. If we think about it a couple of years back, if you told someone, oh, yeah, you can listen to your call recordings or you can send automatic emails, the number one response you probably get is be like, yeah, okay, cool. That's a nice to have. Really, the companies that already had this ability, right, like Oracles to Salesforce, Citrix, right, like we could listen to calls, but 99% of sales teams out there couldn't. So what that means is they were recording things in quick time and, uh, you know, or on their cell phones and playing it back. And so really was this nice to have for most people because they just couldn't afford it. What I think the beauty of, you know, Sales Loft and Gong and these other tools is they democratized it and they brought it to everybody and they gave everybody that superpower that only companies like Salesforce had, right? Like the reason Salesforce requires a sales, uh, you know, action plan on every deal over 50,000 is because they have the resources and they can do it. And for them, it's a must have. For everyone else, it's probably a nice to have. Our goal is to bring that same superpower to every single sales team out there. Are mutual action plans applicable to like all types of deals? And maybe it's too simple of a question, but where do you draw the line if you're thinking about applying these? Really, at the end of the day, an action plan is really just mapping out what the next steps are, right? And as long as you have any follow-ups and as long as you have next steps, and especially if you have different decision makers, you have to create an action plan. Because if you don't, one, the customer doesn't know what they need to do, right? And if they don't know, then again, you're losing momentum and then you're losing the deal. You need to map it out and make it as easy as possible for people to move forward, right? Action plans, the easiest way to do it. Why has Amazon been so successful? I would argue one of the biggest reasons is they made it really easy to purchase, right? You could go on Amazon, you can literally buy something in one click. Like it doesn't get easier than that. If you can do the same thing for your customers, not only are you making their customer journey so much better, you're standing out across every other competitor and you're closing more deals. Just in broad brush outlines, what are the, what are the major components that people should include in their mutual plans? The most important part is the actual next steps, right? What is the target date? Is it complete? What's the task, right? Is it uh, you know, signing a contract or including another stakeholder or scheduling another meeting? And then really, who is the owner of that task? If they are not bought in on those next steps and aren't helping you guide through it, your deal success goes down the drain, right? And so having them actually collaboratively assign all of the next steps, not just the first one, but what else may come up, right? Oh, well, you know, like, for example, we, you know, we're working this deal or last time we purchased something, we actually had uh, the deal die because of the committee, 
okay, well, now we can start having the conversation around what does getting a deal past that committee look like? What does it have to be to be successful? Let's actually start talking about all of the next steps so that way there's no surprises, you know, three weeks down the road. Things like executive alignment, is that something that you see in most people's mutual plans that they create? And are there other components that you think are differentiating that a lot of people fail to do but are incredibly important? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, scoping, creating the business case, executive alignment, executive sponsorship, these are all things that do usually fall into the action plan. It's on every company to create their ideal process. And by what I mean by ideal process is not just the process of their sales process, but the customer journey. What does their average customer have to go through to implement a solution that they're selling? If you talk to eight different customers, there might be eight different processes, but there are things that are in common. So you want to have those things be a part of it. Even more broadly, right? This mutual plan concept is solving an issue that exists in the sales tech world between the opportunity being created and the deal getting closed, right? I mean, you've got all the marketing automation stuff way, way upstream, and you've got the you know, predictive account scoring and so on. Then you've got sales engagement space. Then you fall into this kind of chasm in a way, I guess, which is the opportunity gets created and, and you got to manage that to close. You know, what else is on your mind besides mutual plans that sales people would need in that journey from opportunity to close? I mean, for me, I'm one area I'm really excited about, obviously, and we're going to be baking this in and like are working on it now is predictability and forecasting. There are some really great tools out there for predictability, for forecasting, for, you know, deal health, things like that. But so much of it is just based around an algorithm of how many times did they look at my content, right? I would argue the more meaningful information is what tasks have been done? What is the momentum on this deal, right? And tracking the time between stages or how many stakeholders are involved at each stage and having that data, that gets me really excited, right? Because now we can start saying, okay, <laughs> you know, if you think about kind of like Microsoft Office back in the day, like there was that Clippy, right? He'd come up and be like, did you mean to do this, right? For me, and we're working on encompassing this now, is like when you're working a deal, we want something like Clippy to come up and say, hey, you should probably include a stakeholder at this stage, we see that you're a procurement, but you haven't discussed these three things, right? Now we have these smart recommendations. So I think there's a lot that can be done, especially with AI over the next couple of years in that area, being more intelligent on what's actually going on with deals and really just prescribing it to sales reps, like in real time. What do you think is the single biggest barrier? And maybe we talked about it already, but the single biggest barrier to adoption of, of mutual plans across sales organizations, right? If it's so obviously valuable, what is the barrier to success? The way we kind of qualify clients potentially is three buckets, right? One is this person either doesn't know about, you know, collaboratively selling, aka creating mutual action plans. And we'll talk to them two years down the road when something like recapped is just a required piece of everyone's sales stack. Then we have the second group, which, you know, they know about action plans or they understand at a core that collaborating with their clients is, you know, a must. They just don't know how to do it and they've never really tried. Those are good candidates. But then really the ideal for us is Someone that's already creating mutual action plans or, you know, has started looking into it for 2020, doesn't know where to start or like is putting up with already the challenges of doing it, right? Like they're suffering through Google Docs and they're trying to manage all of these different spreadsheets. That for us is the ideal. So for me, what keeps me up is like, how do we move everybody into, you know, category three? And 
I think a lot of it is really just education and making people realize that this is actually a problem. Being able to collaborate with your clients on a deal in a couple of years will be just flat out a must have in your tech stack. And if you're not doing it, you're losing out on deals. Right? And so for me, it's how do we bring this education to the most amount of people? That's really what keeps me up. But at the same time as like a fast growing startup, like we don't need to have 100% adoption, nor do I think we ever will. But it's really just targeting the customers that really see the value in it and having them join us on this, what we think is like a visionary ride. Yeah, I mean, I think with all, you need to speak very much to sort of change management of people coming to awareness of this. And there's this metaphor that was referenced in a book drive that is the rider and the elephant and the path, right? So the rider is the logic side of it. And the data logic side of me craves like some sort of a study that shows, hey, of organizations that rigorously apply mutual action plans versus ones that don't, right? Here is the sort of incremental improvement in business performance, quota attainment, whatever it happens to be, right? Win win rate, right? Like does your win rate increase? Does your deal velocity get faster if you have mutual action plans? I would believe, and that's why I'm talking to you, is I believe strongly that those two things are true, but it would be good to look at the data on that. Yeah. So Harvard Business Review did this, right? So they they partner up with CB Insights. They studied tens of thousands of teams over a couple of years. What they found is that teams that prescriptively sell, aka collaborate with clients and create these action plans, close deals up to 62% more often versus teams who didn't. I don't know of a single sales leader that can afford to not close deals 60% faster. I guess it's a little like, uh, I know I should not eat chocolate chip cookies. I know I would live longer and be healthier if I didn't, but I eat the chocolate chip cookies anyway. It's uh, This one might be a little of that, which is, I know I should use mutual action plans. I know I would close deals faster and uh, at, a, at a higher rate, but I don't want to either take the time to build them or it's a little bit of the sort of challenger selling piece, not about the bringing ideas piece, but about, hey, I'm going to work with this prospect and I'm going to be a little bit demanding of what I expect from them on the reverse side. I think a lot of salespeople are afraid to put those types of demands in their clients, but the most successful ones, as the challenger study proved, are the ones who are willing to do that. Creating an action plan, yes, it can be easy and it can be quick, but it is extra work, right? You have to sit down and actually really think about what these next steps are. And you have to take time out of the client. It can be really scary to sit down with a client and say, okay, walk me through your entire buying process for the next 15 minutes. But if you do it, if you actually push yourself out of your comfort zone, the results are going to speak for themselves. And I think, honestly, it's probably a good thing that not everybody does it because then the teams who do get to separate themselves. If people do want to learn more about Recapped or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? So you can reach me on LinkedIn. My email is mark at recapped.io. And then for anyone that's, you know, really interested in learning a little bit more about it, we actually put together two templates. More than happy to share. You don't have to sign up or anything. Just go to maptemplate.recapped.io and there's two Excel sheets that we created. More than happy to help kind of walk you through, maybe hop on a quick call and give you some best practices. But if you're doing nothing, at the very least, use those templates, start creating action plans. You need to get that buy-in from the client. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests.
Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast. 